The most downloaded episode in the history of the Leading Saints podcast is my interview with Rob Farrell, the young single adult stake president that I recorded probably 18 months ago, maybe two years ago. It's phenomenal. And I constantly get emails from people saying, hey, have you done a part two to that interview? Well, I'm happy to say we've done so much more than a part two. We actually invited Rob to present in front of a live audience and we recorded it all. He gives us five additional hours, roughly, of content of his leadership approach and uh, perspective. It is so helpful. I've had countless emails of people saying how much this has deeply impacted their approach to leadership. If you have not seen it, you've got to see it. And you can see it in the Core Leader Library, which we make available to all core leaders. Now, to become a core leader, you just go to leadingsaints.org slash donate. And there you can uh, submit a monthly, quarterly, or yearly subscribing donation, and that gets you access to not only Rob Farrell's presentation in the Core Leader Library, but the entire Core Leader Library. So you got to check it out. Go to leadingsaints.org slash donate and help us grow this organization and move it forward by becoming a Core Leader. What we have going here is a podcast called the Leading Saints Podcast. My name is Kurt Frankum. I will be your host. If you're new to Leading Saints, I welcome you. What this is, is a podcast where we focus on the mission of our organization, which is to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. We're a nonprofit organization. You can find out more about us by going to leadingsaints.org, and uh, you can peruse around there. Thousands of articles, hundreds of podcast episodes, all around topics relating to being a better uh, Latter-day Saint leader. And uh, this episode is is phenomenal. We, we talk with somebody I've been wanting to talk with for quite a few years now, and that is Roger Dean Duncan. And some of you may be familiar with his name. He actually wrote the book called Leadership for Saints, which is you'll see available in Desert Books. And it was a book that was written a few years ago. He's updated it a little bit since, but it's a book that really uh, inspired me, and I found a lot of good... Um, good principles and information that really can inspire leaders and give them some some help to be better prepared to lead, right? That's if it's perfectly in with our mission. And in this interview, we're going to talk about things like uh, stake trainings, leadership trainings, right? Or ward leadership trainings. What does that look like? How would you as a maybe a stake leader actually go about organizing something like that? But I know as a young leader, I wanted more training. I wanted more input just on the little things. And so we talk about that. And also this concept of stepping up to the the difficult conversations. Uh, man, that is solves so many leadership problems or so many leadership difficulties if we just learn how to be confidently step up to difficult conversations. And so we touch on that. A lot of information, uh, just so helpful. Everything from tactics that, it, that Roger gives to just this overall spirit of it. So inspiring. And I hope this isn't our last interview for sure. So here is my interview with Roger Dean Duncan, the co-author of Leadership for Saints. Today, through the power of Zoom, I have the opportunity to connect with Roger Dean Duncan. How are you, Roger? Doing great. How are you? Good. Now, I, I, you have a very strong name. This a very uh, that looks good on a book, obviously. Roger Dean Duncan. Is that uh, your middle name? That do you use that often? I use it all the time. It, nice. I, I've had it for my whole life. So <laughs> your I, whole I, life. I, I use it. I guess. Good. I guess. I guess I use the whole name because you know, in the South, I grew up in Oklahoma and Texas. In the South, when you're in trouble, they use oh, yeah. the whole they use the whole name. Yeah, and and I guess I heard it a lot when I was a child. I'm not I'm not sure, but 
I've always nice. I've always used it, uh, especially uh, in my writing career, which started more than fifty years ago. So that's that's my brand. That's awesome. Love that. Um, and I first saw that name on a book that I read. Uh, it was actually a couple of years ago, even though it came out much uh, before that. But the book was Leadership for Saints. And I believe this is published by Desert Book, isn't it? Deseret Book owns it now. It was published by Covenant, which is now part oh, okay. of Deseret Book. Ah, gotcha. Gotcha. And so um, this is a book that I obviously gravitated towards as I uh, love learning about leadership, especially in the context of being a Latter-day Saint. And so maybe just uh, describe how did this book come to be and, and what inspired you to, to sit down and write it? Well, I've been working in leadership for decades as a professional. And in the church, I've had many leadership positions. As I think you know, I was a bishop three times. I was a stake wow. president. And so I was uh, very involved, have been very involved in leadership. And I've known the co-author, Ed Pinniger, for about 55, 56 years. Um, and we talked a number of times about writing a book about leadership. He's written many books, uh, primarily on gospel topics, we thought about writing a book for members of the church on leadership. We were very careful. We didn't want to at all suggest that we knew anything about leadership that the general authorities don't know. Uh, but we had some perspectives that we thought would be helpful. And so we talked about it several times over a number of years. I'm not sure when the conversations began, probably back in the 90s. It, he and I were on a, actually on a high council together in the late 60s. So, oh, wow. uh, you know, we had plenty of time to talk about it, um, but we decided we were going to write the book in around 2002, I believe it was. And then, of course, the question was, how do two people write a book together? I'd written books. I've since written several more. This is the only book I've ever had a co-author on. And there are certain challenges with, with a co-author. Ed and I are such good friends, and, and he's such a sweet guy. He was great to work with. We decided on a division of labor, and I live in Liberty, Missouri. He lives in Orem, Utah. So we, we didn't see each other while we were writing this book, but we talked mm. often. So the way it worked, we outlined the book. We decided together collaboratively what would be in the book, basically. And then uh, we decided who would do what. And uh, since I'm a writer by profession, I guess Ed could say he's a writer by profession. He's written many of them. He's a, he's a dentist by training. Uh, we decided that uh, one person should write the book primarily because you need a unified voice. And if you mm -hmm. have multiple voices, it gets a little confusing for the reader. So I was the primary writer of the book, of, of the main sections of the book. Uh, but he, in every sense of the word, was a co-author. So I would write a chapter, and the content from the book came not only from our discussions of the outline that we produced, but from a lot of material that I had produced when I was the stake president. When I was the stake president, we had a lot of training meetings, and we would record them for people who were unable to attend. Well, I kept those recordings. And so I had those transcribed, and that turned out to be some major portions of the book. And then over the years, I've written many, many articles for national magazines and other venues on leadership, and, and much of that was adaptable to this book. 
So I would write a chapter. I would have my wife read it. She's always been a very good coach. <laughs> yeah. And then I would email it to Ed. And uh, while I was working on a chapter, he was working on the what we call the sidebar. If you will uh, remember from reading the book, and this is a very popular part of the book, on the margins of every page are quotes from general authorities and others. And Ed had a resource where he could, he had thousands of quotes and people love those quotes. And so we put those quotes in the margins and he not only would provide the quotes, he would provide the citations because people like to know, okay, if Gordon B. Hinckley said this, when did he say it and what was the circumstance, et cetera. So that's a very uh, good value of the book. So that's the way we, that's the way we wrote the book and it flowed very, very nicely. Uh, it yeah. was a, it was a wonderful thing. And I will say that it, it was one of, uh, a number of projects I've had over the years professionally where the spirit clearly guided the work. I mm -hmm. mean, it, it, I, I won't say that the, the spirit, uh, typed the words on my keyboard, but, uh, <laughs> right, yeah. pretty, pretty close, pretty close. It was, yeah. uh, it was an amazing feeling. Yeah. And we'll definitely get into some of those uh, principles and concepts that you wrote about. But I'm curious a little bit more about your background because you're you're a convert, right? Uh, how did I, that come I, to be? I am a convert. When I was a senior in high school, it was the last semester of my senior year, I was in American history class. And I can't recall exactly, but I suppose we were talking about the Mormon trekkers or something. I had no idea what a, what a Mormon was. Probably didn't know what a trekker was. Yeah. But I recall being very interested in the classroom discussion. So right after class, I'm in the hallway of the high school getting my books for my next class. And we had only five minutes between classes. So I knew this was a short conversation. So the girl next to me was getting books out of her locker. And she said, what would you think about that discussion? I said, I thought that was interesting. She said, well, you know, I'm a Mormon. And I said, no, I didn't know that. She said, would you like to know more? <laughs> the perfect David O. McKay line, right? Absolutely, the perfect <laughs> textbook. Now, now, I acknowledge she was cute. I, I'll give you that. I'll give you <laughs> nice. that. But I, I did want to know more. And long story short, she introduced me to the missionaries, and I took the missionary discussions and was baptized that summer. And then five weeks after my baptism, I enrolled at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, the largest Baptist university in the world. Uh -oh. <laughs> so that's where I was for four years as an undergraduate. And I, I learned, and I'll tell you about them if you'd like, I learned many, many things about leadership in the church while I was a student at Baylor. I was the only, only Latter-day Saint on campus. They apparently didn't hold, me, hold it against me. They elected nice. me president of our graduating class. Really? But I, wow. was, I was the only Latter-day Saint on campus uh, and the only... Uh, member of the Waco ward. There was only one ward then in my age group. Most people were either young children or um, young marrieds or a little bit older. There was a an Air Force base in town and a lot of them were military. But I had hmm. a wonderful bishop who taught me. There was one instance where he taught me a lesson that has blessed me my entire life. Well, let's hear it. What's the instance? Well, here's the instance. I, <laughs> my first calling that he gave me was to serve as advisor to the deacon's quorum. I'd never had a calling in the church. I'm a brand new 
convert. I didn't know what a deacon's quorum advisor was. I'd never been a deacon. I was baptized (laughs) at the age of 18. So I was immediately ordained to be a priest. But the bishop called me to be the advisor to the deacon's quorum. And I said, well, tell me what that entails. And he said, well, here's a book. It has lessons in it. Every week you prepare a lesson. You come, you meet with the deacons, you teach them the lesson. I said, fine. So I could do that. And I did it that entire first semester and think I was doing a good job. I enjoyed it and loved being with the young boys. Late that first semester, one Saturday night, I was studying late because finals were coming up. And the next morning I was tired and it was awfully comfortable under those covers. And the alarm clock went off and I reached over and turned it off. And I said to myself, self, you can sleep in today because If you miss priesthood, it's okay. Somebody else will fill in for you. I had noticed, (laughs) see, I was just getting acquainted with Latter-day Saint culture. I had noticed that if somebody doesn't show up, somebody else fills in and life goes on. So I went to sleep without thinking anything else of it. That afternoon, I went to sacrament meeting. These were the days when we had meetings in two shifts, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And after sacrament meeting, uh, the bishop said, Brother Duncan, could you come in? I want to visit with you. And I thought he was going to tell me again, as he had before, how grateful he was to have me in the ward and that sort of thing. But he sat me down in a straight back chair. He pulled a chair up close to me. He didn't sit on the other side of the desk. We were knee to knee, eye to eye. And he said, Brother Duncan, this morning you failed the Lord. Now that's pretty wow. straight. That's pretty straightforward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh-huh. I and I I started to stammer some lame excuse, and he said, "Well, just a minute. I, I think this is pretty much what happened. Uh, you've come every Sunday. You've been very faithful. You've never missed. Uh, but it's about time for final exams. And you were probably studying late last night. And this morning, your alarm clock went off, and you reached over and turned it off, and probably said to yourself." you know, somebody else will fill in for me. It's going to be all right. I mean, it was uncanny. The bishop was inside my head. He knew exactly what I'd been thinking. And then he his, he softened his voice as if to soften my shock a little bit. And he said, let me, let me teach you a couple of things. He said, you're a new member of the church. And you need to understand that when you get a calling from the Lord, he expects you to perform. You will see that some people choose not to. But that's not what the Lord wants of us. He wants us always to give it our best. And when we do, our best will get better. And someday you will be released with the vote of thanks. Be sure that you have earned it. Hmm. Now, that, that's about as straightforward counsel as you can get. And I yeah. later came to understand that this was a perfect model of Doctrine and Covenants 121 when it talks about reproving with sharpness. Now, some people think sharpness in that context means harshness. It doesn't mean that at all. It means with clarity. And he taught me with clarity. He said, these are the expectations for your performance in that calling, and your performance did not square with the expectation. And then after he taught me that principle, he gave me an outpouring of his love. When I walked out of his office, I absolutely remembered that this was a bishop who loved me. He cared about me. Now, that's been 58 years ago, and I still remember that. I'm telling you the story now. Yeah. So uh, that was an example, early example of of great leadership. 
I've had many, many models over the years. I wrote a letter to one of them just recently, a man named Bill Sidaway. Bill was vice president at BYU 50 plus years ago. He was a state president. Uh, I was called to serve on the high council of the stake uh, over which he presided. And I recall, and again, this is 50 plus years ago, I recall that it, it seemed like virtually every Sunday we would, we, the, the high council and other stake leaders, would meet in uh, what was then called, it may still be called, the Sky Room of the Wilkinson Center on campus. And we would uh, have training on leadership. It seemed like it was virtually every week. It probably wasn't. One time he asked me, what do you think of the leadership training we have? And I said, oh, I think it's terrific. I, I, I really love it. I'm wondering why we have so much of it. And he <laughs> said, I was, I, was, I was a 25-year-old stake high counselor. So I'm still yeah. asking a lot of questions. I still ask questions. And he said, well, why do you think we have so much of it? I said, well, I'm hoping you'll tell me. And he said, we have a lot of training because we have wonderful young people in our stake. And if they don't get the training here, they may never get the training. Hmm. I hadn't thought of that. But of course, that's true. You never know what somebody's going to have in the future in terms of development. So we have every opportunity as leaders, wherever we are in primary, relief society, the youth programs, it doesn't matter. We always have opportunities to uplift and help others and coach them. And in the process, we learn a lot. So yeah. uh, that's another, he was another great early model for me. So where would you say like your, your passion for leadership and studying leadership, like where did that come from? Well, when I, and in high school, I was in, um, it's called student council. I was in student government when I was an undergraduate. And then I was a journalist early on. I never studied journalism. I later taught journalism at the university level, but I, I to this day, I've never had a course in journalism. Huh. And, you know, I've written many books. I've written hundreds of articles. I write a, a regular column for Forbes magazine that reaches 75 million people a month, but I've never wow. studied journalism. But as a young journalist, I got very interested in leadership. Uh, I covered politics and business. One of my early editors was Jim Lehrer. You may recall that Jim later was uh, the anchor on PBS News. Uh, he also was the moderator of, I think, at least a dozen presidential debates. But he was one, he was a young editor, and I was a young political and business writer in Dallas, Texas. And uh, he taught me a lot about leadership, how to cover leadership. He said, if you want to know where the story is, where the sweet spot of the story is, look at the gap between what a leader aspires to and what a leader accomplishes. Well, we could say that about us in our own performance in the church. What do we aspire to as a ministering brother or sister? What do we aspire to as a Relief Society president? And what do we think we're accomplishing that? Well, where there's a gap, that's where there's some real opportunity for leadership development. So I got very interested in that uh, because of that. I also got very interested uh, in, if you will, I hate to use the word, but the technique of leadership, 
the techniques, the, the behaviors, if you will. Jim Lehrer, again, who was not a member of the church, taught me a lot about how to listen. You know, a lot of times we think we're listening. We tell ourselves we're listening when actually we're just preparing our rebuttal yeah, or right. preparing <laughs> our next question. Well, uh, when I worked with Jim in Dallas, I was also an investigative reporter. And by definition, investigative reporters sometimes aren't very popular. People don't want to talk to an investigative reporter. Right. <laughs> but I, but I, I, I was one, and uh, he came over to my desk one day, Jim Lehrer did, and he said, tell me about your interviews. And I said, well, I do a lot of them. He said, well, how do you prepare? And I said, well, I'll, I will uh, create a list of potential sources. I will uh, develop an inventory of some questions, knowing that other questions will come to mind in the moment. And then I'll set up appointments or I will just go find some people I want to interview. And he said, okay, that's fine. So you're in an interview. What happens? And I, I didn't know where he was going with this. I said, well, I ask a question. They give me an answer. And I ask the, other, the next question. And he holds his hands up like a T, like time out. In fact, yeah. I, if I recall, he made a sound like the, a buzzer on a game show, like stop. And I said, what's wrong with that? And he said, well, listen to what you said. You ask a question, they give you an answer, and you ask another question. I said, what's, what's wrong with that? And he said, well, what if you were to ask a question and they give you an answer? And then before you open your mouth to ask the next question, you count to five silently. Thousand one, thousand two. And I said, Jim, that's going to seem like an eternity. And he said, why do you think that is? And I said, because people are uncomfortable with silence. And he said, yes, and you're one of them. And you are filling the silence with your own voice by asking the next question. He said, if you will count to five silently before you ask the next question, one of two things will generally happen. The person you're talking to will elaborate on the answer already given, give you more information and insight. Or the person will go in a totally different direction you hadn't thought of. And there can be real serendipity there for both of you. I said, okay. So that afternoon I was going out for some interviews and I interviewed some people and I, and I did that. I counted to five silently. I came back to the newsroom and he motioned for me to come over to his desk and I didn't even walk over to his desk. I just said from 50 yards away, I said, I never got past three, <laughs> meaning when I would just pause just a couple of beats, exactly what he said would happen, did happen. Now, I've used that for the last decades as a bishop, as a stake president, now as a stake patriarch when I'm talking with people. I'll ask them a question, and I've learned to discipline myself to let them talk. And especially when you're in a coaching situation or a counseling situation, when you give the other person psychological space to talk, they often discover things about their own feelings that they hadn't really discovered. In fact, as when I was a bishop those three times, when I'd be coaching or counseling somebody, I knew I had succeeded when they left and would say something like, Bishop, this has been so helpful to me. And I realized that I'd done only about 5% of the talking. 
they discovered things themselves. So, you know, there are leadership lessons all around us. And I, you know, I was interested in leadership when I, I, uh, I, you may know, I worked in Washington. I was a consultant to cabinet officers in two White House administrations. Hmm. And uh, I mean, you see a lot of functional and dysfunctional behavior in Washington. (laughs) To say the least. Yes, to say the (laughs) least. And I was very interested in how various people at different levels were able to lead. And I, I looked for dysfunctional behavior and I looked for behavior that created good results. And it, I mean, it was a la- ab- absolute laboratory. And then when I went to gr- graduate school after my master's, uh, w- w- while we were in Washington, my wife and I decided to go back to school. So I looked around for a really good uh, doctoral program and we decided on Purdue University in Indiana. And uh, so I went to Purdue. I was on the faculty at Purdue, but I also finished my my PhD in organizational behavior. And of mm. course, that's about leadership. And, yeah, and, it, and, and it was a it was a wonderful background. By the way, uh, uh, I went to BYU one time and gave a talk and there was apparently a young man there who this is the story he tells me, who heard me talk about studying organizational behavior at Purdue, Purdue. And he decided to go to Purdue to get his Ph.D. in the same department, same professors, same courses. You may have heard his name, David A. Oh, Bed- yeah? David A. Bednar. Oh, wow. So he and I awesome. studied. He, he, he's younger than I. He and I, or he used to be. I guess he still is. Uh, <laughs> we, studied, we studied some of the same things because uh, I, I know what I saw there, and I suspect he did too, that you can study uh, leadership and behaviors and, and those sort of things from an academic perspective. And if you choose to, and I'm sure he did, I know I did, you can see how the gospel applied in people's lives can be a great blessing, not only to the person who's being coached and counseled, but the person who's providing the coaching and counseling. And and over the years, I've been very interested to see how various so-called experts uh, and they don't don't always do this, but many of them will apply gospel principles in their teaching without even knowing their gospel principles. But, mm-hmm. you know, when you think about it, we were all together at that great council in heaven. We don't remember it. There's a veil of forgetfulness that's been pulled down, but we were all there. And we know as members of the church that as children of God, we frequently get glimpses of things, memories of things that we learned before we came to this earth. And sometimes, uh, for some people, often, those memories are translated into mortal teachings. And so there there are some good um, leadership, quote, authorities, um, thinkers out in the world who are not members of the church, who know very little about the church, but who are teaching some good principles. Of course, there are some teaching some very bad principles too, but anyway, (laughs) leadership has been uh, an interest of mine for years, and I've had many opportunities to see some great examples. Uh, Another example was uh, 
You see how I'm counting to five? I just want to point that out. In my head, Roger, I'm counting to five, and you keep giving me more information. You're doing, gr- so you're doing great. You're doing great. <laughs> uh, Anyways, continue. <laughs> I had the opportunity um, in the early 80s to serve on what was called the an advisory council. Uh, we reported to the first presidency. There were a, about a dozen of us on it, all of us lay members of the church, um, I was the youngest one there. I was in my early 30s. At the time, I was head of uh, global communication at Campbell Soup Company. Um, but uh, other people on there were George and Lenore Romney, Mitt Romney's mm-hmm. parents. Uh, Gordon Jump, who at the time was famous for his uh, TV program, WRP in Cincinnati. Um and lots of other people, some of, the, some of them you would remember their names and others you wouldn't. And we met twice a year for several years. And we met with uh, several general authorities, Gordon B. Hinckley, Neil Maxwell, Bruce McConkie, a couple of others, Boyd, Boyd K. Packer. And we would meet for two or three days after October conference in Salt Lake and two or three days after April conference in New York City. And we would discuss all sorts of issues. These were roll-up-your-sleeves discussions, the, nothing formal about it at all. These were work sessions, and they were uh, amazingly instructive for a former Baptist boy like me. Um, and, and I recall a lot of wonderful things that came out of those meetings. By the way, one of the things that came out of the meeting was, uh, one of the meetings was the recommendation that the Book of Mormon have a subtitle of Another Testament of Jesus Christ which was a pretty exciting experience, again, for a former Baptist boy. But I recall that after our discussions on virtually any topic, Boyd K. Packer, who was always sitting at the table, making careful notes, listening very carefully to people, when the discussion was clearly over, he would say, therefore, now what? In other, in other words, we've discussed the issues. We understand the issues. We understand the implications of various things. What course of action should we take? Now, that seems like a very simple habit, very simple formula, and it is. Uh, I have since used that hundreds of times in leading uh, high council discussions or ward council discussions or even family council discussions. Therefore, now what? Now, that's a leadership principle. And so that was something that uh, might seem like a small thing, but uh, I guess I was in the right place at the right time, and that yeah. has been a real blessing to me. Yeah. So, And I would guess that the, I mean, because the, the typical... Um, the typical response for leaders is to say, well, all right, well, let's take action A, B, and C. But that phrase, I think, really sort of puts the brakes on somebody's uh, effort to jump in with with their you know, leadership direction, but instead invite the council to define what that is, right? Well, that's true, and that's why you have a council. Right. Uh, you have a council so you can counsel, S-E-L, together. I think sometimes that's forgotten. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's very important to make it safe for everybody in the room to offer an opinion. And sometimes the best ideas 
seem to come from the most unlikely source. You, you just never know, but you have to make it safe for people to, to talk and speak up. And uh, I think a lot of times uh, leaders in the church and out of the church um, try to take charge of everything and, and make all the decisions themselves. And I think that's, that's foolhardy. I, I think we really need to counsel together. And I think we need to remember, and I've tried to remember this over the years, that one of the primary responsibilities of a leader is not to create more followers, but to create more leaders. And that especially is true in the church. We need to develop more leaders at, at every level. And the church, you know, so many things are changing. I mean, with the emphasis on, on, uh, teaching the gospel, re-emphasis on teaching the gospel in the home, learning in the home, being supported by the church, that's going to require a higher level of leadership in the home. Uh, so, yep. you know, there are many, many opportunities. They're, they're all around us. Uh, so anything else as far as that, uh, th- that concept of, you know, councils or, or making it safe that would be important to touch on? Well, as far as decisions go, um, I think it's especially important when we make a decision as a council or as individuals to think in terms of three time zones. We need to be time travelers. For example, let's say a ward council. You're discussing something in the ward council and a decision needs to be made that's going to affect many, if not every member of the, church, of, the of the ward. Think in terms of three time zones. How will a particular decision square with the past? Uh, decisions you've made in the past, covenants you've made in the past, expectations of ward members that they've expressed in the past. How will a potential decision square with the present, the needs of the present, what people need right now? And then how will that decision bless people in the future? I, I, that's a very simple kind of protocol, if you will, or little model or framework. But I think when we when we think in terms of three different time zones with our decisions, uh, I think that's very helpful. When I was once yeah. bishop of a BYU ward, I created a document that I've used hundreds of times since called relationship criteria, and because we had it was a singles ward, and we had a lot of people who were thinking about marriage. And uh, I would give them this one-page document with two columns. Uh, how would a continuing relationship with this person affect your commitment to the promises in your patriarchal blessing, the promises you made when you made various covenants, etc.? cetera, uh, and then uh, other questions on the other side. And what I was trying to get them to do was to think about uh, a relationship, how it would affect things in the past, how it would affect their life in the in the present and in the future. And th- that was pretty powerful to some people. In fact, yeah. in fact, I recall, frankly, a number of instances where young women in particular would break engagements because they <laughs> when, when I when I had them consider those questions and get really, really honest with themselves, they would come back and say, Bishop, this is not the man I should marry. And I said, well, yeah. that's your decision. 
how did you reach that? And they said, well, I asked myself these questions very honestly, and I've come to the conclusion that that's just not right. Yeah. And so, so in that context, like, um, cause it's easy, especially when making decisions to just keep, to stay in the, the future time zone, right? You're always looking forward to what's going to happen if we make this decision or if I marry this person, right? So could you give us an example as far as like a typical decision made by a ward council and how they w- would maybe consider the past and present along with the future? Well, na- name a subject, name name a topic. What, what are you talking right, about so, in ward councils? Right. <laughs> you, you, you realize I'm interviewing you now. I know. Quickly, the table's turn. Yes, here. yeah. So, <laughs> But I'll, I'll, so, uh, I'll count to five and let, give, let you talk. I, I Yeah, sure. So I think one uh, instance I think that is at least a high priority right now, we're recording on June 10th of 2020 in the midst of the, the pandemic, and a lot of leaders are trying to figure out decisions, make decisions going back to church, you know, what that looks like and how do we consider everybody's perspective and concerns. And so what about just the decision of going back to church? Well, Sure. And, and I've thought about that a lot in recent weeks, and I've thought about things that bishops and ward councils could could be doing during the so-called lockdowns. Uh, are we just taking a sabbatical from our membership in the church? Well, of course we shouldn't be. Well, sure. you know, I, I, I know it, it varies from stake to stake and ward to ward. I know that because I talk with a lot of people. Uh, I know in, in one stake, uh, the stake president told me that a lot of uh, people in wards were having um, talent shows, family talent shows over Zoom. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and that helped them stay connected with with their ward, I, uh, their ward members. I know in some wards, it's total radio silence. Nobody's hearing from anybody. Now, I guess I ask my have to ask myself, what are the implications for the radio silence? for somebody who was kind of on the edge of activity from the beginning. After several weeks of not hearing from anybody in the church, how could we blame them if they were to think, nobody cares about me, so why should I bother to go to church? Now, for those of us who are active in the church, that that might seem like a foreign feeling, but we know that anybody could have that feeling. So, we need to think, in this instance of the pandemic and the lockdown, I think we need to think about what experiences were people having before all of this? What kind of interaction were they having with members mm-hmm. of the church, especially people who were coming back to church, reintegrating themselves back into the, into the church? Uh, and so that's where we're considering the past. That's right? that's the past. And then the gotcha. present. Okay, as a ward council, I know a lot of ward councils are and state councils are meeting by Zoom and other technology platforms. I guess we could be asking ourselves, what could we do, what could we be doing right now? How can we reach out to people? How can we use technology? How can we use snail mail? Uh what are the things we can be doing right now that we might not have done otherwise? but that are especially important now. And then thinking of the future, how are we going to sort of rev up the engine again? And it's going to be slow. I know some wards are meeting already and, you know, we still have social distancing. There are people who are uh, attending the wards and they're, you know, they're not sitting with their friends now. They're sitting with their families and they're several feet away from their friends. And maybe there's an elbow bump now and then, but it's not like it used to be. Uh, How are we going to, 
kind of, and, and at what point will we ever get back to where we were? I hope we will. Yeah. I'm a hug. I'm a hugger myself. <laughs> and, nice. and, uh, and, and I, and I love people and there are a lot of people in our ward and stake that, that I really love. And I, you know, I, I want to be close to them in every way. So we're going to have to be thinking about those kinds of things and how are we going to be teaching in the future? And what have we learned recently that could help us in the future that, uh, some things, some ideas that we might not have even thought about in terms of using technology. I know my wife and I, uh, for two or three years, have had some of our friends over every Monday night for wonderful family home evenings. Well, we haven't been doing that, but we've been using Zoom. That's not the same. We can't hug each other, and we can't, uh, you know, have ice cream and, and blueberries together. But we've had some <laughs> wonderful discussions. And, and uh, frankly, the way we have been preparing for our Zoom online family home evenings will help us have even better face-to-face home evenings when we get start to get back together. So there yeah. are lots of opportunities. There are, there are always opportunities. That. And so you just intentionally spend time in each one of those time zones as you're talking through an issue or a decision that needs to be made. Oh, sure, sure. Any Any kind of decision. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. A great framework. Because I, I think a lot of leaders, they're just sort of, uh, you know, they sort of put it on their own shoulders. I'm the bishop, and I guess the buck stops with me, so I got to say whether we're going to do the chili cook-off and at what time, and you know, and but really, it, that helps space it out and, and spread out the decision-making. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And if, you know, in, in the business world, we talk a lot about engagement. Well, we need engagement in the church, too. We need mm-hmm. people, uh, you know, the best performers, if you will, in the church are those who give the Lord their discretionary effort. They go way beyond the minimum. Uh, And we see those wonderful people all around us. And uh, one reason they give more than the minimum is that they've not only been given, quote, permission to do that, they've been given very explicit encouragement to do that. Yeah. Love that. Um, one one uh, topic you mentioned that I'd like to uh, to ask you about as far as this uh, training in a in a stake or, or the formal leadership training that maybe a stake presidency or local leadership puts on because you mentioned uh, early on when you were a high councilman you, you saw it modeled there and then uh, all these recordings you did as a stake president with some of that training and and what I would guess uh, speaking generally what the feeling is is maybe a bishop is called or even a stake president and they feel like you know, I, I have some experience. I kind of have a, an idea of how to lead and I'm going to f- figure some things out as I go, but I don't necessarily feel comfortable like putting on this formal training about how to do these things. So we typically say like, well, just, you know, t- keep the handbook close and make sure you're following things there. And um, so what guidance would you give if, as far as putting together formal leadership training that maybe the stake presidency puts on or, or some of the local leadership? Well, I, the, the thought comes to mind, a, a quote from, I believe it was uh, President Tanner many years ago in the first presidency. He said, yard by yard, it's hard, but inch by inch, it's a cinch. Hmm. So re- rather than thinking in terms of some massive, uh, complicated uh, leadership training program, yeah. think of bits and pieces that can help people. For example, we talk about... Uh, Interviews. We do a lot of interviews in the church. Yeah. We may not do as many interviews as we should. 
I do a lot of stealth interviews, you know, in conversations, I'm actually interviewing somebody. They don't know I'm interviewing them, but I'm, I'm really trying to learn yeah. things about it. It's not formal at all. Uh, but you know, I've, I've done training where I've trained high counselors and bishops in how to conduct an interview. And I, I touched on a little bit of it a couple of minutes ago, you know, count right. to five, yeah. Yeah. that sort of thing. Uh, and how do you follow through? How, when, when, Say you're a bishop's counselor, and uh, one of your assignments is to oversee the Sunday school. If a new Sunday school president is called, what should that counselor do? Just be there when he's set apart and hand him some material and leave him alone? Frankly, that's what happens a lot. Uh Or should somebody sit down with that new Sunday school president and help him understand very specifically what the expectations are? And how those expectations dovetail with what's what the ward council is trying to do to bless the members of the ward, and then when there's a if there when and if there's a gap between expectations and performance, you have something to talk about. Mm-hmm. And the time to talk about expectations is at the beginning, not when when there's a gap. Yeah, or when they've let you uh, down, right? <laughs> or when they've let you down. And you know, in the church, let's get real. A lot of times people in the church may not perform to somebody's expectations, and then somebody doesn't have the either the courage or the skill to step up to that conversation that needs to be had. So what happens? They're released with a vote of thanks. And what does that <laughs> what does that produce? That produces a good housekeeping stamp of approval on that less than satisfactory behavior. And that person goes uh, on his merry way thinking, well, I, I didn't, you know, I thought I didn't really do very good, a very good job, but gosh, I was released with a vote of thanks. So I guess it was okay. <laughs> and then they just repeat it. Yeah. And then they're called and, again. And, 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 and then they're called again. Yeah. I love a quote from Neil Maxwell. I heard this live at a leadership training meeting. I think it was in the late seventies. He said, uh, in essence, and you can Google this and find it. He said, there are many tacit, silent deals between people mm. where one person suggests tacitly and silently to the other, I'm not going to really push you to perform as best as you can if you, are, if you don't push me. It's kind of a, kind of a silent deal. I'm not going to challenge you if you don't challenge me. And uh, frankly, that's not what the Lord wants of us. The Lord does not want mediocrity from us. He didn't send us to this earth and give us agency so that we will consistently make choices to perform at less than we're capable of, especially in building the kingdom. Now, we do have that right. He's not going to take the right away from us to choose, Uh, but we should choose wisely. And if we really care about building the kingdom of God on earth, all of us need to learn our duty. We need to be very teachable. We need to be easily entreated. And we need to learn how to step up to those conversations that we need to have when someone else is not performing as well as they should. Yeah. It's hard, but it needs to be done. And when you see an environment where that kind of thing goes on, you see a stake or a ward or a family that is really thriving. Yeah. 
and, and I love the the term, you know, step up to that conversation because, you know, I'll get emails all the time from leaders across the world who is sometimes frustrated with someone they're working with, whether it's somebody above them, you know, their bishop or whatever, you know, authoritatively or someone that they're, they're trying to lead. And nine times out of 10, the answer is, it sounds like you just need to go have a conversation with that person. There's yeah, not like some exactly. passive aggressive, you know, tactic that right. you can use to diffuse the, the, diffuse just go the talk situation. To them. Go talk to them, right? Yeah. 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 It's not that complicated. So um, going back to the, the concept of, of training and, and, and holding trainings, because um, I, th I think a lot of leaders feel like, well, I need some type of curriculum, right? Like, uh, you know, talk about A, talk about B, talk about C. But oftentimes, like you said, it's all in the little things. Like uh, I remember being a, a young uh, bishopric member. It was my first time conducting a sacrament meeting. And we've sit in the, we sit in these sacrament meetings our entire lives, and I'm nervous to, to conduct the sacrament meeting even though I've heard it a bazillion times, right? So I found the other counselor and I said, hey, would you just sit down with me and walk through like how I do this, what I say, you know, anything, any tips you might have? And he was like, oh, sure, right? And that was so helpful, just the little thing of that we just sort of assume everybody knows how to do, right? And we may have a new so, counselor and do it. So you're suggesting to me that when you ask for that help, he didn't pull out a PowerPoint presentation? <laughs> He did not. He did not. not. Okay. <laughs> he just sat down and he coached you on th three or four or five very yeah. simple things you need to remember and gave you some coaching. Yeah. It, it's really not that, it's not that complicated. And if, you know, if we want a handbook um, for leadership, we have the scriptures. Right. And, and, and there's so much wonderful leadership training in the scriptures. You can take hundreds of scriptures and put it on a white, white, write it on a whiteboard and have a wonderful discussion based around this question. If we live that principle, brothers and sisters, what would it look like in observable behavior? Hmm. Take the 121st section of the Doctrine and Covenants. If you come to Liberty, Missouri, you can go over to the Liberty Jail and it's chiseled in granite. <laughs> Uh, it's it's pretty impressive. The whole the uh, whole uh, uh, yes, section. Yes, the, the oh, entire wow. the, the whole section. Oh wow! So uh, I've been there. I guess I didn't don't remember that. But. Well, come back. You can stay okay. with us. All right, sounds good. Um, so you can take a scripture like that, and you and you could you could ask you go around the table and ask people what does it what does it look like in observable behavior when somebody is reproving with sharpness. And again, as I said earlier, that's not about being harsh at all. It's about being clear. You're coaching somebody. Now, reproving sounds like a tough word. Well, sometimes we need to do it. But, you know, we do it lovingly. I can tell you when I've been reproved over the years, uh, I can't think of a single instance, gratefully, when I was not reproved by someone who I knew they loved me. I knew they had my best interest at heart. They coached me. They would say, Brother Duncan, we need you to do this. We need you to do that. If you do it this way, here's a result you'll get. If you do it that way, here's a different result. Which result would you like? Yeah. Again, it's not that complicated. Yeah. Uh, and I would suggest, too, I have found, and millions of church members have found the same thing, the best teacher I can say this for me, is the Holy Ghost. And sometimes I think we run the risk of forgetting the wonderful gift we have. The prophet Joseph was one time asked of all the 
distinguishing characteristics of the Latter-day Saint people. What's the most distinguishing one? And, you know, there's a long list of things he could have listed, but he said, the most distinguishing characteristic of the Latter-day Saint people is that by virtue of the covenants we make and the covenants we keep, we have the opportunity to enjoy the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is the great teacher. And let me tell you something that I've learned as a stake patriarch. Prior to becoming a patriarch, I don't know how many blessings I'd given over the years. You know, bishop three times, uh, a father to four children, grandfather to 12, stake president. I mean, lots of blessings. They're different Hmm. as a patriarch. You are uh, declaring lineage. The blessing will be recorded. And that blessing will be referred to for the rest of the life of the recipient. So it's different. Here's what I've learned as a stake patriarch, but it can apply to anybody. I I guess I wish I had noticed this earlier. The Holy Ghost speaks in italics. Now, I learned this when I was first transcribing the blessings. A lot of patriarchs, we, we are authorized by the Quorum of the Twelve to outsource the the transcriptions. Well, I'm a writer. I'm comfortable at a keyboard. So I transcribe them myself and I do it within half an hour of when I've given the blessing. And I've learned as I've listened to my voice, I've learned to remember what I was feeling when I said certain words. And the blessings don't come from me. They come from the Lord, of course. But I've learned that I can listen to my voice and remember what I was feeling in the moment and the word was in, I heard it in italics. And so when I give a recipient a patriarchal blessing, I give them one copy on the form that goes to the church archives. It does not accommodate italics. I give them another copy of the blessing, exactly the same words, but in a word document that does accommodate italics. And, and I tell them in advance, I'm going to do that. I said, I'll tell them, you know, I don't know if there are going to be any italics in your, uh, blessing. But if you get two copies, you'll know that that's what I was feeling as the patriarch, uh, because a patriarchal blessing comes through revelation. And this is what I was feeling. Well, my point is anybody who is worthy of the promptings of the Holy Ghost can listen for italics. And as I've thought about this, I've thought about the many times that the Spirit has whispered to me over the years and I realized that I was hearing italics. I remember as a professional when I was coaching senior executives, I remember many times when some senior executive in some kind of workshop would ask me a question, Dr. Duncan, uh, can you help me understand this? And as that person was asking the question, I would send a quick prayer up. And the prayer was something like, Heavenly Father, please help me understand not only what this person is asking, but what he is not asking. And frequently, and this is, of course, just a couple of seconds that with that prayer, frequently I would hear an answer come out of my mouth that didn't come from Dr. Duncan, I can tell you. <laughs> it came right. from the Spirit, and the Spirit was, was talking to me in italics because I was really eager to know what would the Lord have me teach this person, not as a professional consultant, but as a fellow child of God. And that that was a blessing to me many times, and it 
was only later when I became a patriarch, when I came to understand how that was really working. I've, I have found it to be fascinating. It's available to all of us. Yep. And I really appreciate that, that emphasis on the Holy Ghost and that gift that we have. And, you know, going back to leadership trainings and, and whatnot, like, you know, sit with that with with that gift and reflect on it and you know and ask that question you know what what is it that i could teach to the leaders of my area that would that would best help them and and see where it goes and even taking that concept of the holy ghost and presenting it to to the um to the group right and i love that that structure that it's not like you have to come up with this you know 30 30 page powerpoint presentation that has all the answers right. you just come with a few questions and then let the discussion formulate the the training itself from the other good perspectives in the room. Sure, and 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 often um, the greatest benefit from training or coaching or teaching doesn't come from the teacher. It comes from what the individual discovers within himself or herself. Several years ago, my wife and I were teaching uh, a Sunday school class of sixteen and seventeen year olds. And uh, they were they were wonderful. We we loved being with them. Well, I decided as part of that teaching, um, we we'd been talking about testimonies. And you may recall the story about how Ernest Hemingway, the novelist Ernest Hemingway, was one time challenged because of his sparse writing style to write a novel in six words. Now I suspect. <laughs> that that challenge was is issued over a bottle of tequila somewhere, but <laughs> he, he accepted the challenge and he wrote a famous, you can look it up, a famous so-called novel in six words. Here were the six words. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. <laughs> now, when I first heard that, frankly, where my mind took me was sorrow. I thought, Oh, somebody oh, yeah. had a baby and and the baby didn't live. But there you know there are many directions you can take that. Well, there are a lot of people who and I've done this with clients over the years, I would challenge them to write their personal mission statement in six words. Ah, I can't do it. I need more than six words. No, I'm giving you six words. I'm giving you a week. I'm going to give you six words. And sometimes they'd come back with really interesting things. And they would always tell me that that really caused them to think, well, with this group of 16, 17 year olds, we asked them to write their testimony of the gospel in six words. Hmm. And they too said, well, we can't do that. And I said, of course you can. We're going to give you a week. Now, the next week we came back and about half of them had not done it yet for various reasons. They forgot it or just kind of blew it off. We've heard those reasons before. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But, but half of them had done it and they were, they were very impressed by how that helped them really examine what's important to them and what testimony means and how they were developing their testimony and how they had, how they hoped for the future to strengthen their testimony and the covenants they were determined to make and keep, et cetera. So, you know, something as simple as that can be a very powerful teaching tool. You don't need a whole lot of curriculum. I mean, it's nice to have curriculum. It's nice to have books like, just happen to have one right here, <laughs> Leadership for Saints. It's, yep. it's great to have books like that. I mean, it can trigger a lot of thought. And that that book, by the way, is used 
we've had people all over the world say tell us they're using that in high council training and ward councils, etc. But y- y- you have the scriptures. Yeah, take a scripture, any scripture. Uh, King Benjamin, he, he was a great teacher. If you believe all these things, see that ye do them. Okay, you could ask each other on a ward council, how does that translate into observable behavior? Yeah, powerful. Possibilities are limitless. Yeah, suddenly an hour went by and uh, everybody feels engaged. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's so helpful. And usually the hardest part is just scheduling it on the calendar and doing it right. And once you get, once you get in that arena, like a lot of this will flow and just have the confidence and, you know, take these questions and perspectives that you've heard here. And and I think because to me, like I desired that so much as a young leader, I just, I wanted to do a good job, but man, I didn't, I really felt a lack of confidence because I didn't have that training that I, that I truly wanted. Right. Right. Go a long way. Well, uh, another thing that I think is important and a Mm -hmm. a lesson I've learned many times, but there's a particular experience I had that really, nailed it down for me. I was on an assignment for the church uh, in the mid seventies. I was, um, in London and I came across a man who worked for Scotland Yard and, uh, the, the, the police force. And he was a, a world famous, um, uh, expert in counterfeit currency, not just British currency, but currency from many countries. And I said to him, you must spend an enormous amount of time studying counterfeit currency. He said, no, a matter of fact, I don't study counterfeit currency at all. I said, well, but you're the world-renowned expert. How is that? And he said, I spend all my time studying the real stuff. And then mm-hmm. when I see a counterfeit, I recognize it immediately. Now, what does that tell us about leadership training? We need to focus on the real stuff. The real stuff is in the scriptures. The real stuff is the behaviors the, the teachings of the Savior. Mm-hmm. The real stuff is in the teachings of the living prophets. Uh, there's a lot of other stuff out in the world, and I, I, I read a lot of it. I read about 120 to 130 books a year. I interview for my Forbes column and for books I write dozens and dozens and dozens of thought leaders. And I've learned to be able to sort through the real stuff and the not-so-real stuff. Yeah. Because I have fo- learned to focus on the real stuff, and I think that's what we need to do as members of the church. Yeah, and so I'm curious with that balance because um, you know I hear some people will say like you know I don't need any other resource but the scriptures and that you know and the handbooks and I'm good to go. But in my experience, it's been you know so beneficial reading books like yours, and I understand a concept or a principle that I then carry over into the religious world, which obviously that that principle has roots in maybe the Bible or in the Christ teachings or those things. But I feel sometimes leaders are scared to maybe, you know, bring bring outside uh, research and scholarly perspectives into the world of church leadership because it's not in the scriptures or it's not, you know, authorized or these things. Any any thoughts come to to mind with that balance? Well, I, I guess I would ask, how many times over the years have you heard C.S. Lewis quoted in General Conference? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Last time I heard, he was not a he was not a living prophet, <laughs> but he was a godly man. He was yeah. a very bright man. He understood the scriptures. He had some very interesting insights, 
And if you if you listen to and study the teachings of the prophets, you'll notice that it's fairly common for them to quote sources outside of the scriptures. Yeah. But of course, they've studied the real stuff and they know what squares with the real stuff. Mm. I've learned that as I read these 120 to 130 books a year. Uh, it's, cl- it's clear to me instantly what squares. In fact, I get a lot of books, as you might imagine, people wanting me to interview them for Forbes. Uh, and I'll read the book and I'll just, you know, tactfully and politely tell them no thanks. Hmm. You know, I, I, there, are, there aren't any questions I could ask them that can redeem what they've written. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah. But a, but a lot of people who again have know very little, if anything, about the church or the gospel, write things that certainly square with gospel principles, and they present their ideas in ways that are very thought provoking. Yeah, I read a, I read a book just recently called "Think for Yourself," and um, the title is provocative, and the book was very interesting. And as I read that book, I thought. These ideas are could be helpful to anybody who's, and that would be any of us, who's developing a testimony. I tell people that we're all investigators. Yep. You know, just because we've been baptized doesn't mean we should stop investigating. Of course we need to be investigators. And we need to think for ourselves. We can't get to the celestial kingdom on the basis of somebody else's testimony. So there are questions we need to ask and there are things that we need to do to humble ourselves and be easily entreated. And so, you know, there's lots of opportunity for us. Yeah. So it sounds like, I mean, and I love this perspective is, is that you, regardless of what outsourced sources you reference or use or, or learn from always use the scripture, the scriptures as that square, bringing it back there and saying, all right, does this measure right? Or is this off? And why is that? And that may lead to further light knowledge, right? Right. And, and, you know, some counterfeits are, can be very convincing. Yeah. Uh, you know, Satan himself um, beguiles us not by telling 100% lies, but just some very dangerous lies. He, you know, he, the, the, an evil spirit can, can kind of reel us in with some things that we know are true, and, and then we kind of go to sleep and we can be beguiled. So we, yeah. we need to be alert always. Just stay prayerful. Right, right. Love that. Uh, well, Roger, this we've covered a lot, and I, I sure hope this isn't our, our only interview. I think there's a lot more we can go into, and I'd love to learn from you in, in the future. So I may, uh, you may get more emails from me. So. Well, that's fine. I'm, I'm easy to find. <laughs> good, good. Um, any, any other concept uh, that we haven't covered that uh, you want to make sure we, we hit before we wrap up? Well, a lot of times people have asked me because they know I focus uh, on leadership a lot. Uh, they have a new calling and they'll, they'll ask if you could, if you could uh, tell me in, in very brief terms, maybe even one sentence, you know, we live in a world of, of sound bites and yep. uh, um, Twitter. Yeah. Uh, 240 characters, right? 240 characters. Yeah. <laughs> people, people want short doses. They say, you know, what's, what's, what's your short answer of what, what should I do in this new calling? I tell them a couple of things. I say, first, stay prayerful because your greatest coach will be the spirit. Uh, so ask the Lord to help you and then listen very carefully. When you pray, 
don't don't use your prayer like going to the the uh, takeout window at McDonald's. You know, ask Heavenly Father to help you understand what you can do to be effective, and then take the time to listen. And then, secondly, uh, if, if you're leading someone else, establish and clarify mutual expectations early. Do it early. If you're a bishop, if you're a new bishop, sit down with your counselors and have some really uh, open and honest conversation about how you can help each other. Uh, If you're a Sunday school president, sit down with each teacher and have those conversations. Uh, So listen to the Spirit and talk openly with people and listen to them. And that's also a good time to remind them to count to five. (laughs) Count to five. Uh, that that's maybe the title of this episode. I don't know. But <laughs> uh, if people want to learn more about uh, your leadership for saints book, and uh, where would you send them to learn more about that? I would send I would send them to Amazon. We have a later edition of the book now. Uh, go to Amazon, and there's a paperback version that's less expensive, and uh, we updated it a little bit. Yeah, the cover's different that, than the one I have that, that you showed the cover, me. The, co- the cover's different. Nice. Um, but the content is still in there. Awesome. So awesome. A- Amazon's, Amazon's the place to go. Perfect. Well, last question I have for you, uh, Roger, is as you reflect on your life of leadership, especially uh, in the church, having opportunities to serve as a lay leader in the church, how has leading made you a better follower of Jesus Christ? Uh, leading has, I believe, made me more mindful of a number of things. One, uh, the Savior's expectations for us in terms of honoring our covenants. Um, and it has leading has uh, broadened my understanding of things like uh, what we read in the 18th chapter of Mosiah, uh, mourn with those who mourn. That's not just about making a batch of funeral potatoes. There can be people around us at any time who are in mourning. There can be people around us, and there are at any time, who need comfort. We need to comfort those who stand in need of comfort. We're not going to know frequently what the specific issue is with the person. But if we listen to the Spirit, we will know when to reach out to people and to befriend them, to encourage them, to uplift them. So I guess uh, one of the things I've learned over and over and over is to listen to the Spirit. The Spirit will never, ever let us down. But the Spirit does not grab us by the lapels and shake us. The Spirit whispers to us. So we need to be in a listening mode. There it is, folks. The interview with Roger Dean Duncan. I appreciate it so much So uh, of, of those principles he shared. He's fun to talk to, such a, a warm spirit, and uh, he, you can tell he's definitely a hugger. Am I right? Uh, but I hope I have the opportunity to, to get one of those hugs and, and meet with him in, in person at some point. Uh, just such an inspiring voice uh, among many in this, in this uh, membership of the church of so many perspectives that have inspired so many, even uh, obviously Elder Bednar, seeing uh, from Roger Dean Duncan, inspiring him to... Uh, seek out a life in organizational behavior. And now those principles, that perspective, that education is blessing the entire church now that we have him as an apostle to uh, to guide us uh, through those wonderful principles he's learned, along with squaring them up with the, the gospel, with the scriptures. So helpful. 
I encourage you to check out his book, Leadership for Saints. It's a good read. I've heard uh, myself even of, of ward councils that maybe uh, spend a, a, a few minutes on each chapter every time they meet uh, or have somebody prepare thoughts after reading a chapter, sort of a book club for ward councils, right? This would be a great resource to turn to that would then launch you into uh, scripture perspectives and principles that uh, obviously are at the root of all things leadership that we, that we talk about. If you have any other suggestions of individuals, authors, influencers, uh, that uh, we could reach out to an interview like Roger Dean Duncan, I would love to hear about it. And maybe if you have a connection, that really makes it a whole lot easier. So go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and uh, submit a quick message there. I'll receive it directly and we'll take it. And finally, if you can uh, just drop this link into an email or on, on social media and share it with somebody who think you think would benefit from this as well, would you take the time to do that? That really helps us to uh, get our message out there and uh, get these principles into the ears of, of more people who could benefit from them. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 and join the Core Leader community today. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.